Good evening, everybody. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and Dr. Karen Eifler and I are the uh, directors of the Garaventa Center here at the University of Portland. And this event uh, that you've graciously uh, attended this evening is co-sponsored by the Garaventa Center and uh, Catholic Charities of, of Oregon. Uh, we're, one, we're really delighted to, to have this collaboration with uh, one of the most uh, profoundly important and influential uh, organizations uh, not only in Catholic Portland, but, but, in, but in Portland. Uh, a few uh, uh, housekeeping uh, things. First off, we always mention that uh, if you are a K-12 through teacher of any description, whatever, and would like to get PDUs, that's Personal Development Units, um, you can get those for attending this or any other Garaventa Center event by special arrangement with the University of Portland School of Education. So if you'd like to sign up for PDUs, and if you need them, you know what they are, that uh, you can do that around the corner back here. And, and also, if, if you are here uh, as a student and you want your professor to know you are here, uh, you similarly can sign up on the sheet that's, that's, that's around the corner and back. Um, this is one of many uh, Garaventa Center uh, events that we have uh, this semester and this academic year, and we'd like to do just a little bit of a coming attractions, because you're, you're going to love tonight so much, you're going to think, I, I want some more of that. And uh, uh, the next opportunity uh, after tonight uh, will be the uh, pre-play reception and panel for Boing Boing, which is, which is coming up this weekend. We, as a center, we have a, a free uh, wine and cheese reception before one performance of every main stage production uh, at the University of Portland. And at, it's not just wine and cheese either. It's uh, three eight-minute succinct talks from three uh, University of Portland scholars uh, about the play from, their, from the perspective of their particular discipline that really uh, casts light on the evening for you. And I'm just going to just cherry pick a couple more things. Uh, how about a concert? A concert would be good. Um, on Friday, October 12th, in the Chapel of Christ the Teacher, two of Oregon Catholic Press's most talented artists, pastoral musicians and composers Rudy Lopez and Estela Garcia Lopez, are going to present a concert uh, with a focus on Spanish praise texts. And, uh, and that's free, of course. And, uh, and here's something a little different. Uh, on Wednesday, October 24th, uh, we always like to have a lecture uh, or an event around Halloween that has a kind of a Halloween theme to it, but is still, of course, very academically credible and intellectual. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so this year, uh, Justin Yerkel, a professor of uh, theoretical ecology uh, from California is going to be giving a talk called It's Alive! Competition, Extinction, and the Ecolo Ecology of Reanimation. It's all going to be based on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So, uh, so that there, are, there are lots of wonderful, other wonderful things as well. And there are some um, 
uh, calendars of coming events that you can pick up uh, as, as you leave uh, this evening. So, um, I'd like to start with a, a confession, and uh, maybe it'll sound kind of strange coming from a priest and, uh, and one who teaches theology at a university. But when I experience life, and when I think about life, um, I very often think first in, if you will, kind of secular categories and secular language. And then I have to translate my thinking and translate my experience into the categories of faith, the language of faith. And, and while I, I think I'm pretty good at doing the translation, I really uh, would like to get to the point in my life where I don't have to do that when my primary experience of life and my primary thinking about life would be kind of fundamentally in the categories of faith. Um, and I've met a few people like that, and I'm, and I'm deeply moved by them. And I want to be like them someday. And I know I'm running out of time. I don't know if I'm going to get there. <laughs> But that's been a major project for me in my spiritual life and, uh, in, and even in my intellectual life. Um, I think that I'm not unusual in this. You know, we all live, most of us, in the same uh, really powerful and pervasive culture and society. Um, and so I think we do uh, often have to translate our first kind of experience into the categories in the language of faith. Um, and I think that that's particularly true when it comes to the great social issues of our day. When we uh, encounter the great social issues of our day, uh, we tend to react first, perhaps, with our political instincts. Um, we think in terms of our political allegiances, um, and then we kind of translate that into uh, a religious language. And, and I think that particularly at this moment in our, in our nation's history, when, when there's so much you know, divisiveness and rancor, it would be really helpful if we could do some like primary hard intellectual spiritual theolo theological work that would enable us to to ground our convictions about these great social issues not in oh, this is what people like me are saying about this issue, or this is my first instinct politically on this issue, but, but thinking in the first instance out of the context of, uh, of our deepest faith commitments and convictions. And, uh, and I think that this evening uh, our speaker is going to help us to do that 
in regard to this, this powerfully important social issue of migration. And so uh, we're extraordinarily grateful to have him here with us tonight to, to help us uh, do some of that thinking. And uh, both spiritually and, and theologically in a way that can ground our convictions and also can ground our action. Um, Father Dan Grudy, CSC, is Associate Professor of Theology and Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame and Director of the Global Leadership Program of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, where he's also a faculty fellow. And he is a Holy Cross priest, a member of the same congregation that founded the University of Portland. Um, and uh, he's an author, he's a film producer. He's authored numerous books and articles that have been translated into seven languages, which include Globalization, Spirituality, and Justice, Navigating the Path to Peace, and Border of Death, Valley of Life, and Immigrant Journey of Heart and Spirit. He's also the executive producer of several highly regarded films and documentaries, including One Border, One Body, Immigration and the Eucharist, and Dying to Live a Migrant's Journey. Father Grudy has worked with the United States Congress, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the World Council of Churches, the Vatican, and the United Nations on issues of theology, globalization, migration, and refugees. And in 2007-2008, he was a visiting research fellow at Oxford University's uh, Refugee uh, Studies uh, Center. Uh, he's one of the most uh, highly regarded people uh, in this field of, of doing the theology undergirding and underpinning our, uh, our social convictions and action. By the way, in his day, he was also a champion downhill skier. Though um, so I don't know how much time he has to, uh, to hit the slopes lately. Uh, he's here uh, to present Passing Over Migration and the Eucharist. Please welcome Father Dan Grudy. Thank you, Charlie. Um, it's really great to be back here in Portland uh, for a number of reasons. And I think and to talk, talk about a subject like this in the place where Lewis and Clark uh, came through and really ended their journey as so much as defined the narrative of the United States is really kind of a special thing. But also to be here um, in a place founded by the Congregation of Holy Cross. And so many of my brothers that are here tonight, um, so many that have been instrumental in my own formation, Father Bob Antonelli, who um, I think is, is here, Bob. Um, Father Bob Antonelli, who was there when I first entered the seminary, uh, Father Claude Parmelo, who I live with in Chile, uh, and so many other people that uh, kind of have been interwoven with my journey uh, in Holy Cross. And to be here at a place that really was a place of learning and growth and also migration west. Um, but lastly, I want to I want to acknowledge Ed Lanois, who is a dear friend who I entered the seminary with in 1986. In 1987, we rode a bicycle from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, and Ed stayed here. Um, so... Um, uh, I know Ed's a dear member of this community, and uh, it's really great to be with him. So um, 
So that migration across the country, um, I think, has something to in connection with the migration I want to speak about tonight. So um, I don't know how I got into this issue. Um, it found me more than I found it. But um, but I think I want to share with you just some stories tonight that um, that really uh, speak to migration and speak to uh, our deepest journey of faith. And so uh, I particularly want to shape it around. Uh, two stories, really, uh, one of which is about 18 years ago, uh, I was at the U.S. border where uh, they have a binational mass each year where half the communities in Mexico and half the communities in the United States, and they actually join the altar together at the fence. So it's rather striking that um, to, to be in a, a place to celebrate a Eucharist in the outside, at the wall, um, at the border, where you celebrate one Eucharist in the midst of this divided political reality. So I think I've been unpacking that experience ever since. And so some of the reflections tonight come out of that, uh, that research. Um, but also I'm really um, taken by the, one of the first experiences that Pope Francis had after he was made Pope. And that is um, shortly after he was elected, he heard a story that moved him deeply. Uh, and so I often ask my students, what's the first place you'd go to if you were elected Pope? You know, you think about it, you know, where would it be? Who would you want to influence the most? What kind of statement would you want to make? Where would you want to journey to? But the place he journeyed to, the first place he went outside of the Vatican, was actually a place he went to in response to a story he heard. And it was a group of migrants and refugees who actually had crossed over in a boat very much like this one, where they can pack as many as uh, six or 700 people into these boats. And as often happens, if they tilt too much to one side, the boats capsize. And when they capsize in the middle of the Mediterranean, there's no place they can go as, when they're in distress. And so in this particular case of the hundreds of people on board, only seven of them survived. And when uh, they, they survived by clinging onto a fishing net in the middle of the ocean. But when the fishermen saw them clinging onto their nets, instead of saving them, they actually severed their nets and cast them to die in the ocean depths. And Pope Francis was so moved by this that within eight days, he actually made plans to go down to Lampedusa. Lampedusa has become something of a symbol of the global refugee crisis because it really represents those who are cast into this merciless sea in the hope for a better life. But it's only about eight square miles in area. It's, it's really not much more than a rock in the middle of the ocean. And when he went there, uh, he celebrated mass uh, by the uh, ocean harbor, and he actually uh, used um, an altar that was built over a, a boat and um, interestingly enough, he actually also used a chalice that was made from the remains of a refugee boat. So it was part of, a, part of the driftwood of a refugee boat. Uh, and so it always really captured my imagination to ask the question, what is this relationship between migration and Eucharist? And what is this, what, how is migration even a, a, a miniature of our own journey through this world? Uh, and how do we look about the connection between what's happening inside churches and what's happening outside churches? So that's something what I'd like to talk about today. Uh, you could also see this happening here in the U.S. border. Uh, sometimes it's called an American Lampedusa, uh, where the bishops have also had binational masses, as I mentioned. But this is Bishop Kakanis from Arizona giving communion across the fence to someone in Mexico. And so really there's three kind of main points that I'd like to really look at today. Um, one is I want to say something about the global refugee crisis. Now, secondly, I'd like to look at what Pope Francis at Lampedusa called the globalization of indifference. And thirdly, I'd like to, um, to reflect a little bit on what Pope uh, John Paul II referred to as the globalization of solidarity. So in some sense, it's try to look at the bigger frame. 
of migration, but it's also trying to reframe the narrative around migration. Because in many ways, the dualisms that we have about citizen, alien, legal, illegal, native, foreigner, they've broken down. They just don't work. They're not helping us at all. And so we need more than to just get into political debates about this, is we need to rewire the motherboard a bit. And we need to really reframe the narratives around migration. And we need to recover some of our root narratives around migration, not the least of which is rooted in this community of Lewis and Clark. So how by looking at these historical narratives and these root narratives and these spiritual narratives, can we really reshape the way we think about the issue of migration? Because in many ways, to just get in the political debates about this is so far down the road, uh, we haven't really looked at the deeper migration uh, into the human heart, which really where we need to really rethink about this altogether. So to do that, what I'd like to do is shape that conversation tonight around the issue of migration. And those of you who've uh, Dick Rutherford knows, I, I know you, you can really speak to this more, um, but those of you who are involved in liturgy and other kind of uh, research would know um, that in the Eucharistic liturgy itself, there's really four parts to the Mass. Um, there's the introductory rite, there's the liturgy of the Word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, and the communion rite. And in a parallel way, what I'd like to do tonight is just shape my remarks around the four parts of the Eucharist, which is one, the introductory rite. Um, I'd like to look at first the age of migration. So first, I'd like to say just some general remarks about migration, not just in the United States, but globally. Each time we'll go a little bit deeper. Uh, secondly, I'd like to, to look to what I call the liturgy of words, which is to look at the conceptual and debated territory about migration. And here, it's not just to look at what's, what's wrong with what other people say about migration, but even people who we disagree with, what's even right about their positions first, and then try to analyze that you know, from there. Thirdly, I want to go more deeply into that and then ask, once we register those positions and analyze them, how do we go more into the theological positions about migration? And here I want to look at the liturgy of Lampedusa in particular, which would be the spiritual and theological territory. And lastly, I want to look at the, conclu the concluding rite, which is really about the mission territory. What does this all mean? And I'd like to highlight especially the work of Catholic charities, many of whom are in the front row, some of whom are in the back. They'll be speaking to you at the end because they are really doing the work where the rubber hits the road in terms of working with refugees and migrants and really trying to help people find access to better lives and, and often those who are kind of fleeing persecution and violence. So as we uh, go into this a little bit, the first thing I want to say is migration is not a new issue. It's been around since the beginning of time. Um, it's really one of the most defining issues of our age. And as we look at the beginning of the scriptures, it's rather interesting that it actually begins on a migration narrative. Um, we actually see Adam and Eve being exiled. They're the first forced migrants, if you will, from the Garden of Eden. But then you look at the stories of Abraham, Exodus, exile, return, incarnation, discipleship, mission, ultimately to the end of the scriptures when you see John writing from the Isle of Patmos in exile, speaking about the New Jerusalem. There he frames that all of life is in fact a migration back to our homeland. Um, and so really migration from beginning to end, the scriptures define it and redefine it for us. But as you look at this territory today, it's also refugee central. Um, you look at some of the major places where people are migrating from today. Certainly two Iraq wars in Syria, more than eight million people who are internally displaced within Syria alone. Uh, Turkey has three million refugees living in their midst. Lebanon is a country of four million people, have two million refugees living in their midst. Jordan is a country of six million. They have another million people. So really, the, the biblical territory in many ways um, 
is, is still marked by issues of migration. They go to our core, they go to the depth of who we are, um, and yet they help us define who we are before God. And so one of the interesting things about this as well is that this is not a new issue at all. Um, in fact, I became aware of this some time ago when I swear this is a true story. Um, th- this is um, sometimes the Irish say, don't let the facts get in the way of a true story, but a good story. But this actually did happen. Um, I buried my uncle, whose name was Bill Grudy. And um, after we went back to Bill Grudy's hometown, we had a funeral mass, we paid our last respects, and we buried Bill Grudy's body near the ground. Um, I went home, and when I answered my email for the first time, I was very struck by one message line, because it just said on the tagline, a note from Bill Grudy. So my first reaction was, wow, he made it. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's wireless now, and he just wanted to let me know how he's doing. Um, so Bill said, you know, I live out on the West Coast. I live near the Napa Valley. And he says, I, I did a web search on what Grudy's were out there, and I saw stuff you're doing. He says, look, if you ever want to, if you're ever out this way, he says, look me up. And I says, great. I said, come, come, to, uh, come to Berkeley. I'm coming in a few weeks. My community has a house. And so, um, so we made the arrangements, and my community knew I was coming. Can you imagine this in any community or family setting? A couple uh, weeks later, I, I came into town. I was arrived late in the afternoon, and when I got to the house, my brother said, will you be here for dinner? And I said, yes, you know, and I met somebody on the Internet, and I invited him over for dinner as well. <laughs> so he's like, what? You didn't even know this guy? You invited him over for dinner? So a little icy in the reception um, but uh, over time, things thawed out, and as we began to connect the dots, we realized that there was a deeper heritage that we were related to. But Bill and I started working on a number of projects together, including a couple of films. He was an NBC News reporter, and uh, we started working on a few films together. Um, but eventually, Bill and I did another study together, which was really interesting, is that in 2000, they had a press conference on the, on the lawn of the White House where Francis Collins and some of his associates ha- had basically announced that they had deciphered the, the sequence of the human de- 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 uh, genome. And so uh, by looking at this genetic map, they said this is going to really redefine a lot of our research for, for centuries. Um, but what's really rather striking is by looking at the consequences of this discovery was that by looking at certain genetic markers on this strand and comparing them with indigenous tribes, you could actually trace back your migration heritage 80,000 years. So Bill Green and I did this independently. This is the map of our ancestors and their migration over the last 80,000 years. It was an exact genetic match. So this is the route that my ancestors have, have migrated um, since then. And um, one thing we can say very clearly is that migration is in our genes. So this stuff about Trump and executive orders and all this, this is just a blip on the map. This is really nothing compared to really the, the long history. Migration has been with us from the beginning. It defines us more than we define it. And people are going to continue to move regardless of what kind of borders and policies that we put in place. There's a need for them. They have some proximate value, but they're not absolute. But this issue um, has been going on since the beginning of time. But what's different today is the scale and the scope of migration. So at present, right now, there are more migrants than any other point in history. And first indicator of this is those who are living outside their homelands for a period of time, more than a year. So right now, there are more than 244 international migrants around the world. That means one out of every 35 people in the world is a migrant. And there are more than 68 million refugees, which is more even than World War II. So all the upheaval, all the instability, all the movement around, people who are fleeing their country because because of war and persecution, because of um, 
ways in which, uh, because of race, nationality, social membership, political opinion, people are experiencing um, their, their inabilities to live in their homelands, they're fleeing. One very important piece of this, migration is not the central problem. Migration is a symptom of deeper problems which cause people to move. Just think about this one statistic alone. 19% of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. 48% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. 75% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. 95% of the world lives on less than $50 a day. The top 1% of the world has as much as the poorest 57% of the world, and the three richest individuals in the world have as much as the poorest 48 nations. Right? When we think about those numbers, we realize that migration is not the central problem, but it's the symptom of deeper problems. And as Vatican II said, those problems are related to deeper imbalances within us. So as we look specifically at the migration issue, right now, um, if refugees were settled in one particular place, they would be the 21st largest country in the world. And they would be growing at a rate of 38,000 people a day or 24 people per minute. If you actually were to take the people migrating within countries, like Colombia, uh, like China especially, and many other countries like, like Syria, they would, um, there would be as many as um, one billion migrants, which is one out, of, uh, one out of every seven people on the earth is a migrant right now. Now, what distinguishes some uh, categories of migrants is their level of vulnerability. And uh, one of these pictures, uh, for the last 10 years, I've been working with the bishops on their conference on migration, and periodically we do delegations into areas of concern. This picture was taken in the Syrian border, maybe about a mile or two from the Syrian border. This, when we got there, these women were just in this tent. All of their husbands had just died. Um, three of their husbands had just died. The mother who's holding her head in her hands right there, she just found out that their fourth son had been put in prison and her grandson had just been killed. Um, and I've only seen the Pieta two times that moved me to tears. The first was when I saw it in marble, in stone, and the second was when I saw it in living kind of flesh in the Syrian border. Because this for me is an icon of the Syrian refugee crisis. You can see this woman in shambles, her whole life torn asunder, her family, family her children, many of them killed, her wives and children just vulnerable in the midst of the, this was in, in the Lebanese side of the border, um, and you can see there's no words, theological or otherwise, you can see this woman just not in any way even being able to touch that suffering or that pain. Um, and yet still somehow, you know, just accompanying her friend even when she didn't have the words. These are women who didn't speak the same language. They were from a different faith. Um, but they had a common human experience I know that touched me in, in ways that I knew at that moment required and called a, a, a surrender to a deeper vulnerability myself um, to enter into that space, wherever it led. So I, I want to hold up this picture as just one of the ways of really highlighting that we live in an age of migration, um, and it's one of the most defining issues of our times. That's the introductory right. The second thing I want to say, though, as we go a little deeper in this is what I, what I call the liturgy of words. Um, there's two things I want to say in this section and um, at the same time. The first is that migration is an incredibly, incredibly complex issue. If people don't realize that, collect, that complexity, either they, they don't understand it or they aren't listening. The second thing I want to say is migration is an incredibly, incredibly simple issue. And if people don't realize that, either they don't understand it or they aren't listening. Um, 
Both of those are true at the same time. We need to understand both the complexity and the simplicity of this issue. And to just give you somewhat of a sense of where that became clear to me is that one of the areas of research that's been really quite interesting and helpful to me is working with the Border Patrol, both in this country and overseas, and going along with them in different parts of their job, whether it be on what they call um, with, on search and rescue missions, helicopter patrol, surveillance missions, or sometimes it's called just a ride-along. So you accompany these agents as they go about their normal duties. And this was about 15 years ago, but I remember I was with one agent and we were down at the, the, the U.S.-Mexico border. We were driving along the, the wall uh, of the truck. The wall was like right over here. And uh, at one point, um, you know, um, he was explaining to me as we were driving past the wall. He says, you know, at one point he said, you know, these, uh, these aliens came across the wall, you know, and uh, those were his words. And he said, I want hot pursuit of them. And he says, but at this moment, he said, uh, most, most migrants coming across the border are hardworking people looking for a job, but this was a moment when there was serious criminal activity involved. They were smuggling drugs, and when they saw him pursuing them, they turned around and had semi-automatic weapons, and they started raining machine gun fire down upon him. And so he says, at that moment, he says, I hit the deck. He says, I felt these bullets whizzing over my head. And he said, he thought at that moment I was going to die. Um, and he says, it was so traumatic that I'd wake up with nightmares. He says, it affected my marriage. And he said, um, you know, he says, really, from that point on, I had to go to counseling because my life really was really in shambles. And I have to say that at that point, something changed in me because I no longer saw that Border Patrol agent as an enemy or as someone who just took people away. I recognized his own humanity, and I recognized I had to move beyond my own borders. You know, I had to move beyond, beyond my own preconceptions of this issue or who he was. So... When his humanity came through, we kind of entered into further conversations during the day. But later in the day, we were about 40 miles north of the border. And I said, how do you know which vehicles to stop? And it was no more than two minutes after I asked that question that a vehicle came by that looked very suspicious. And it was at that moment that he quickly shifted gears, going from Border Patrol agent on public relations duty to Border Patrol agent in hot pursuit of a vehicle. So he turned on his lights. He went in hot pursuit of this vehicle. And then in a moment's notice, um, I just saw this cloud of dust and then these migrants just run out of the vehicle in every direction. But I have to say that I was so much at that moment in the mind of this Border Patrol agent that my first reaction was, oh, we get some, you know. And then I woke up to that and I thought, oh my gosh, I thought about all the migrants I've worked with over the years and I thought, no, I hope they get away. I'm like, run, you know. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh my gosh, I, I was just caught in this complex web and it was really a mental cramp that, that came. Um, and then I realized that this issue needs to be dealt with in its complexity. And so really from that point on, I started going to human rights advocates, political leaders, hospital administrations, and emergency rooms. I started working with political leaders um, and uh, vigilante groups and others, trying to understand these positions and to then reflect on them. So what I'm about to share with you here is, is the fruit of many years of research. Um, but, but what I want to do is present to you these different positions and the legitimacy of the positions and then kind of analyze them from there. So the first part um, is the groups who are vigilante groups. And what are they trying to do? Most of them are, are people who are trying to protect personal property along the border to prevent unlawful entry and to fill in the gap for federal enforcement fails. So they're saying it's, it's not ideal that people are coming across the border and we don't know who they are. Um, they could be bringing in diseases. They could be taking away jobs or whatever else it would be. But um, they're generally patriotic people and there's sometimes ranchers who are seeing the property trashed and they realize that, um, that the government's not doing its job. 
So they, uh, they, they're concerned citizens who go to the border to try to make a difference. The next group is the Department of Homeland Security, or ICE, Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement. And they say, our job is not to make the policy. Our job is to enforce the policy. Our job is to ensure order and prevent unlawful entry, especially of foreign invaders who could, who could harm its citizens. So I work with the Border Patrol prior to 911, and I work with them after 911. And there was a market shift in the way they understood what they were doing. But they'd be the first to say, is look, we're just trying to enact what has been decided, and we're trying to really enforce the laws. Um, and really, 911 really did reshape this a lot. We had one of our Holy Cross priests in one of the planes who went into the Trade Center. Four of my family members were in the towers when the planes hit. They got out alive, but 19 people from my home parish actually died in those towers. And I think everybody has their stories about their connections to these events. But terrorism is something that needs to be dealt with. And it's a very hard adjudication for people to go through this determination about who is coming in with a credible threat to do harm to us and who are just hardworking people <coughs> looking for a job. The next are political leaders. Their goal is to create federal policy, to protect the citizens of a country, and to manage its resources. So they would say that, look, we can't let in everybody, and we have to make distinctions. Uh, in the early days of the country, we let in almost everybody, but we did make some distinctions then. We did return people away at Ellis Island if they had certain diseases or if they were anarchists, anarchists or others. There are others uh, today, we let in almost nobody, but we make some exceptions. Um, and so the laws have changed a lot over the years, and political leaders really have to assess Thank you. I have to assess really how we go about this work um, and how we really kind of try to define who we are as an American. Ben Franklin is widely considered like the first American, and it's interesting is that if you take some of his rhetoric in the early days of the Republic, and where he puts Germans and you just put Mexicans or Latinos today, it's virtually the same arguments. You know, the fear of the other and the discrimination against the other. Corporations we see also getting very active in this because there are places like Oregon where crops are going to waste because there's not enough labor to help do the work that's needed. Um, and so we have this dilemma in our country is that we need immigrant labor, but we just don't want immigrants. So that creates a bit of a challenge for us. But we see this both at the high level and the low level. You see in the technical fields, the STEM fields and others, you see corporations becoming more vocal in terms of opening up spaces for people to come and stay globally competitive. We see this in the lower sector as well where, where work and labor is needed. Church leaders as well have also been very vocal on this. I think the main focus has been to proclaim a God of life, protect the rights of human beings who are made in God's image and likeness, and, to, and what Pope Paul VI said is to build a civilization of love. So it's to denounce injustice and it's to announce the reign of God. Now, bishops have been extraordinary on this. There's a lot of negative press obviously going around with the church these days, but we never hear other sides of the narrative, I think, that also need to be lifted up. The, um, the United States has resettled more refugees than any other country in the world. The, the uh, United States Bishops' Conference and its affiliate agencies like Catholic Charities has resettled more, more refugees than any other organization in the United States. And if you take just the work of the Bishops' Conference alone, um, in uh, the larger immigration resettlement field, it would be the second largest resettler of refugees anywhere in the world. Right? There's 300 people who work at the Bishops' Conference in Washington, D.C., and 100 of them work on migration and refugee issues. So this has been a major piece of our work as a church, and I think it's important to really acknowledge and highlight that. 
human rights advocates are trying to do that as well. And drawing from different sources of inspiration, they're trying to fight for human, ri uh, human rights and to uh, prevent the exploitation of the vulnerable. So you can see this is not a, a, um, a kind of a battle between good people and bad people necessarily. Um, people are making legitimate claims to things that they're fighting for um, with some due reason and respect for those causes and those positions. Why then is it so controversial? As I've reflected on this, um, one of the reasons, and here I want to just look, begin to look at these positions a little more analytically, um, is say that somehow beneath these arguments there are different rights at stake. This first group, I would say, is arguing for property rights, how we protect one's individual property and land. The next group, more collectively, is trying to look at the issue of sovereign rights, that is how you protect the borders of a country and keep it safe. Thirdly, this group is looking at cultural rights and how do we define what it means to be an American, especially in a pluralized democracy. This next group is looking at economic rights um, and how do we keep the free market open and hopefully fair. This next group is looking at natural rights, namely those given by God. And this last group here is looking at human rights, classically defined. So if we see this not so much as a, as a debate between right and wrong, but even tension in a, uh, between different kinds of rights, then it gets thicker because we realize that somehow we've got these rights that conflict and compete with each other. So when property rights, my need to protect my, my, my particular land, uh, really uh, bumps up against my need to feed my, feed my family um, in my natural rights, this, this is where it really becomes more difficult. So we really need to, to begin to sort out what rights we would assess as being more valuable than others, and this is where our own values begin to come to the surface. This is also where our faith really plays into it in an important way. Now, um, the political positions are gonna really fall out along three lines. Um, this group here is gonna emphasize enforcement. So, close the borders, keep them out, let's protect what we have. This has been really the politics of fear, and this has been the dominant sort of policy position over the last 30, 40 years. This next group here is going to argue for guest worker programs, which we've had in different times in our history, especially in World War II, when mostly men went off to fight the war. We needed people to actually do a lot of the labor that was needed in this country, so we had a Bracera program. It wasn't perfect, but it did sort of meet some of those needs. But they argue, look, they need the work, we need the workers, let's create a legal system and allow people to go back and forth. And it's probably the only place where a real legitimate compromise can be attained. This group here is going to argue for legit, uh, legalization, um, and they would argue for more open borders. But I'd have to say that the Catholic Church does not argue as a position for completely open borders. It recognizes that there's a value in borders, um, even we're somehow bordered within this structure of this space to have this conversation tonight. So there's a value in borders. Um, it has an important value, but it's not an absolute value, the church would say. And I think that's a distinction from where the secular writer would be. Um, some would take that further, but I think it's important to say that the church recognizes that right, but it says it can only really meet that right after other rights have been met and other distributive needs have been met. But here's where it, it, it begins to shift, and here where all things are not equal is where um, we get into language. So one of the things I said in the beginning that one of the things I would advocate here for tonight is to reflect more consciously on the narratives that drive our positions on migration. What's underneath our perspectives about migration? What's the, the, the conscious or unconscious narrative that shapes those positions? Those narratives are shaped by language. And so those people who have been involved in literary studies or cultural studies or gender studies or rhetorical studies know that language shapes a reality. In this case, language will also shape a narrative. And that narrative is first gonna be shaped by the words that we use. 
So this group sees them as aliens. That's the official terminology of the U.S. government. Uh, so really, I, I remember a colleague of mine was telling me the story about when he met his fiancée and he went through a legalization process with her. She was from Canada. He says he went to the immigration hearing, and the officer looked at him and looked at his wife and looked at him again and says, how long have you known the alien? You know, so um, he was just so taken aback by it. You know, And I mean, I think this is more than semantics, too. Because when a person crosses a border and um, they're apprehended um, by authorities, do they have no legal right to be there because they're illegal? Or do they have an intrinsic right to be there because they're human beings? All right? And I remember being at a meeting at the UN in Geneva one time and we got into this debate in one of our small groups. One person said, the states grants rights to these people. And I said, no, they don't. I said, God grants rights to these people. It's the state's job to ensure that they're protected. So how we come apart on that one is very important because these issues go up to the Supreme Court. How we define our humanity, how we define our relationship to others, where these rights come from, whether they're intrinsic, whether they're given. This is part of why it gets so complicated. This next group sees them as workers. Um, And really, if you talk to economists today, I'm not an economist or a political scientist, um, they would say it's basically a parody. You can make arguments against migrants, you know, because they take things from an economy, you can actually make bargains. They contribute things to the economy. They pay taxes. They do jobs no one else does. And one of our lead economists at Notre Dame has actually studied this. He said, yeah, in the short run, they do actually take more than they give back. But if you look at the longer trajectory, they actually give more back than they take. You know, but the narrative shapes a lot of that. And a lot of the narratives, they take, they steal, they, they're, and therefore they, they are a threat. So we've got to analyze that critically if we're going to be serious. And I challenge every one of the students here especially um, – what I say to my own students is you have to think about this very seriously. You can't just parrot back sort of simplistic arguments to people. You have to do your homework. You have to look at the facts. You have to argue these um, really seriously um, because too much, we have just a poverty of imagination and really a very superficial, reactive debate about migration today, which doesn't actually help us go to the deeper analysis here. So. The workers here, I think, um, are, are an important piece of this. And we have to analyze not just the economic costs here, but also the human costs. All right? the, the bishops would even say that, that the, the moral health of an economy is gauged not by its GNP, but how well it treats its most vulnerable members. This last group here, um, and this is not a very deep thought, but it's really one of the most fundamental, is that this group sees them as people. Um, if, we, if we actually can't have, get that part right, if they are just people who can be exploited for my own benefit, then you might as well not, not even you know, stay here, actually, um, because everything on Catholic social teaching is going to be built that these people are made in the image and likeness of God. They're children of God, and therefore be, be respected as such. Um, and if they are people, that makes a different set of moral claims on us than if they're just things that can be exploited. And this language is, again, not just kind of, um, kind of a small piece of this, because we did some um, research after the genocide in Rwanda, and one of the really breaking points was when um, really people saw the Tutsis and the, when the Hutus and the Tutsis, they killed a million people in 100 days. When the Hutus started killing the Tutsis, one of the reasons that they justified is these weren't people. These were cockroaches. So they justified their elimination because they really weren't human. So it can happen in subtle and unsubtle ways, um, but in the end of the days, it is about people. But we have Juan and others, um, Sarah, um, who are lawyers working in Catholic charities here. It's, it's on the legal lines that this breaks down probably more than any other. And we know very well the pushback we get, even and especially from Catholics. 
And a common pushback that I know I get is, you know, which part of illegal don't you understand? You know, we get that very commonly, you know. Um, you want to sometimes say, which part of the gospel don't you understand? But that's kind of aggressive, too. So, um, you know, so that's not really the most helpful. But um, but any of that, I, I think actually we need to take that question to face value, because I think what we need to push back and say, actually, no, which part of the law don't you understand? And this is where theology can be quite helpful, because because Thomas Aquinas said there's actually four kinds of laws. There are natural laws through which families need to feed their families. You know, um, there are um, civil laws which which really are, are organized and, or, and oriented towards the common good. We have divine laws which we know through Scripture about feeding the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned. And we have divine laws through which God keeps the universe in motion. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. from a Birmingham jail said, these laws are which cause segregation are not consistent with these other laws. And therefore, we have to have some symmetry between these laws if we're going to create a society of justice and peace. So when people say that it's not legal, they don't know a deep enough understanding of the law. But this group is going to argue for the civil laws. And it's an appeal to what I would call the invisible mind. And the argument would be, what are you, crazy? These people are going to take our jobs. They're going to ruin our culture. They're going to make us eat salsa all the time for crying out loud, you know? So, so there's something crazy about this. And then the water imagery comes, you know, they're going to flood us. They're going to storm us. They're going to, they're going to ruin us, you know? And again, this narrative is as old as, as the sky. I mean, I'm in a school of the fighting Irish, which really was about the Irish being discriminated against. It wasn't just a football slogan. It was basically a social justice crime in immigrant community. And when we beat USC and Navy on the field, it was a social legitimation. It wasn't just an athletic victory. So, but what happened to the Irish and the Italians and the Lithuanians and the Chinese, they really got hit. Then the Japanese and the Germans, uh, then the Filipinos and the Latinos, now the Muslims. You know, this is just, just change the blank. You know, it's the same dynamic going on. You don't really hear about discriminated Irish today, but the same immigrant uh, communities are still kind of marginalized and exploited. Um, so the civil laws is one argument, but actually is too reductive. Um, the next group is going to argue the economic laws, and they're going to really say, look, let's let the economy just work this out, um, and, uh, which actually creates other issues, and it's an appeal to the invisible hand of Adam Smith. But what it's naive about, actually, is that the real problem and the danger and the vulnerability of human beings that the scripture points out to us is not atheism. It's not not believing in God. It's actually making false gods. It's actually idolatry. And so the God of choice really is money theism. I mean, money defines everything. It actually shapes everything. And then we have liturgies and rituals of the stock market every day that actually define us. That's why the liturgy of the Eucharist is so important to reshape the narratives of culture um, in more life-giving and humanizing ways. This next group here is going to look at the natural laws. Um, And the United Nations uh, really has an expression which is deep theological resonance that says really the real importance is to look at the invisible heart to really start to look at the bigger picture of who we are in this world and why we're here. Um, And I would say theologically that discipleship is about making visible the invisible heart of God. That's really what discipleship is about. So this boils us down as we come um, towards the end of this, uh, this, this liturgy of words in this debated territory to an equation about otherness. All right. So in the end of the day, that's the central question. Who is the other? All right. Every migration issue everywhere in the world that I've seen, even locally, is about otherness. Who am I? Who is the other? What's the relationship between the two? All right? And where are we in relationship to that question? 
The first quadrant here is, uh, or part here is going to look at migration in terms of a fear of the other. The next group is going to look at and calculate in terms of the usefulness of the other. The third group is going to look at in terms of the connection to the other. Right? Some of our deeper migrations are going to be how we move between those spaces. All right? And we may find ourselves in different parts of that at different times of our life. But the deeper borders and challenges are within us. And the deep, without kind of really um, working out those issues, um, we really, we, they only manifest themselves exteriorly in our, in our politics. That's where the deeper conversion needs to happen. One of the most profound movies that we were talking about earlier, one of the most profound theological movies I've ever seen is Groundhog Day. So do, do a theological meditation on Groundhog Day. I, I, God's only mentioned, I think, once or twice in the film, but it's all about God. And it's all about who we are. And it's all about kind of trying, to, trying the road towards, towards life and freedom and love. Um, that's the bigger frame. It's not just about what I have or don't have. It's not about our politics. It's all about who we become as human beings. So where that leaves us is not just a geographical border when it comes to migration. It also leads us to a conceptual border, which really is a border that kind of is a tension zone between sovereign rights and human rights. The right of a nation to protect its borders, but also the right of a people to a dignified life, even if it means migrating, an argument which Catholic social teaching does defend. It's also a tension between civil law and natural law, namely the right of a society to organize itself for regulations for the common good, but also the right of a people to protect their families, to feed, to educate, and to shelter them. Thirdly, it's a tension between national security and human insecurity. Um, that is really, uh, but here's an important point. Unless we deal with human insecurity outside our borders, we're never going to have national security inside our borders. The national laws are always going to win. That's why people say if you build an 18-foot wall, you're going to have people build a 90-foot ladder. Why? Because the natural laws are going to push them. Those people who are working with immigrants know this directly. They don't want to leave their homelands, by and large, mostly. They want to stay where they are. But if they can't sustain their lives at home, they move. That's why they cross borders. And lastly, and I'm going to take this a little deeper in this next section, which is to look at the connection between citizenship and discipleship. So it's to say there's some proximate value in forming an identity of who I am, especially as uh, a citizen, but also to say that there is a deeper claim to who I am if I am a Christian that takes me beyond really the borders of my country, which is really the realm of the kingdom of God. So unless that, what Jesus said, everything else is relativized in front of that kingdom. All right, That kingdom is a kingdom of truth and life of holiness and grace, of justice, of love, and of peace. And because of that, it will relativize all other kingdoms of this world, including our own. So um, so as we go just a little deeper still um, into this, um, it's really trying to move beyond just the debate and the arguments to go into the deeper theological territory. And that really gets us into the realm of, um, of, of theology and spirituality. Now, when I was... Um, eight years old, I remember going on a, a road trip with my family. And uh, we stopped at a rest area and I found, a, I found a pamphlet that made a very provocative impression on me because the question said, um, did you realize that you could actually miss heaven by 18 inches? Think about that for a minute. You could actually miss heaven by 18 inches. And I thought, wow, I, I mean, no, I didn't know that, actually. And so as I started reading through that, I don't know if it was then I wanted to study theology, but at least I wanted to answer that question somehow. Uh, and actually went on to say that actually that um, the distance between the head and the heart in most people is 18 inches. And God is not just someone to understand conceptually, 
but actually someone to encounter in the depths of our heart. Unless we can move that 18 inches, God will remain abstract. And God will remain only an idea, not a person in a relationship. So Native Americans put this differently. They said the long migration of human life is between the head and the heart and back again. But I would go further. It's between the head, the heart, the feet, and back again. That's the circular epistemology that we have to actually undergo. Now, I was giving a talk in Minnesota one time, and some people were there for the Mayo Clinic, and this one nurse came to me afterwards and she says, I want to take your analogy a little further. She says, the carotid arteries take the blood from the head to the heart and then circulate it back again. So the blood and its toxins, after it's done its job in the brain, have to go through the lungs and the heart to be purified to then come back again. And what happens in most of our debate, why it becomes so toxic about migration in society is it never goes through that circulatory epistemology. It stays on the level of my ideas. We never go through the conversion that's needed before we even speak, because we think we're right. And one of the big problems today is moral righteousness, that people think that we're just right because we can state our position emphatically or strongly. But it has nothing to do with biblical righteousness. Because biblical righteousness first begins with our unrighteousness and with our need for conversion and our need for healing and transformation. Only then, if we go through that conversion in our hearts, can we see things clearly. Otherwise, we're just going to see things like we're looking at a circus mirror. This is all the more important when we come to this issue because, um, because this is what happened at Lampedusa. Coming back to this boat, Pope Francis... Um, heard this story and, and really was immediately moved and he, he said it was like a, a thorn pierced my heart um, and, he, and immediately he said he needed to do something. It's rather interesting to hear the internal story about this too because initially he wanted to go to Lampedusa and he said, no, you can't, it takes too long, we've got to prepare for this, we've got to deal with security and he said, forget that. So he calls up Alitalia and says, this is the Pope, I need, a, I need four plane tickets, one for me and three other Monsignors, we're going to go to Lampedusa. Hangs up. Sometime later, Alitalia calls back and said, look, some guy just called and says he's the Pope, and he says he wants four tickets. We don't quite know what to do with this. But as we know, which is so typical, you know, he dispensed from all the ecclesiastical particulars, and he saw what was needed, and he did it. And so he went down to this island, this very small island, which is the symbol of the refugee, uh, global refugee crisis. And this is really, at the foot of the island, this is their kind of Statue of Liberty, if you will. It's a door to Europe, which is a sign of hope for immigrants looking for better life. So it's in between the African coast and the European continent, just south of the Italian boot. But it's in this shores that many, many people die. Now you see this, this, um, this boat here. This boat figures very prominently within this story because this boat here came off the African coast. It was journeying its way towards Europe, but as it was getting towards Lampedusa, it got intercepted by the coastal authorities. And um, so as they intercepted it, they started to um, uh, tow it back to the Lampedusa Harbor. But as they got closer to the island, the rudder broke, and it started drifting perilously towards the, this rocky coastline. And if it did and crashed against the coastline, it's likely that many people would die because many of the migrants on these boats can't swim. So, um, so what they did is they summoned the village and they called people to come at the very wee hours of the morning to really mobilize them to help out. And so um, as they did, um, the whole village banded together, did what they needed, brought the boat to shore, brought, got the people off the boat, ferried them off through some ropes and other things. They had great risk and even injury to themselves. They saved the whole boat of people. So it was like 325 people. Now, many of these boats end up in a boat graveyard like this. And one of the persons who actually helped in this rescue effort was a carpenter on the island, and his name was Franco Tuzio. 
And Franco was a man who was a Christian, and he always kind of was very troubled by the migration issue because sometimes, you know, he said he'd pull a hundred bodies off the coastline of people who had died in the ships, and these ships really crashed in the middle of these waters, and no one even knows that they're there. All right, and he says what really happened for him one day was that there was an earthquake in Abruzzo, Italy, and three hundred and I think he said three hundred and twenty people died in that earthquake. Um, and then um, it was a day of national mourning. They closed down the shops. They closed down the airports. They closed the shutters. They had a national day of mourning. They had a mass. They had dignitaries come to this mass. It was a, it was a subject of national news. And uh, he said, but after that earthquake, during those same days, actually, as the earthquake, he said a shipwreck happened, and there was more than 330 people that died in the shipwreck. And nobody knew about it. No news person covered it. There was no story on it. And he said he realized that there were these first-class deaths, like people who were recognized and valued, and there were these last-class deaths of people who died and no one even recognized them. So this began to work on him. And so when he was able to, after carrying bodies off like year after year, day after day, um, he said that this day was different because when they had actually saved the people from this boat, it was a victory. So, interesting enough, the boat was a symbol of salvation. The boat was a symbol of salvation. But shortly after this, the boat broke into pieces and uh, the driftwood went all over and they had to remove the hull. And as they were removing the hull, they actually realized that actually there were three people underneath the hole that had died. So he said it changed the symbolism dramatically. What was a symbol of, of life and salvation now became a symbol of death and destruction. So they took these three uh, members and they wanted to remember them in a certain way. So one of the ways he remembered them was by making crosses from these boats. And these entered the way into pilgrimages and prayer services throughout Italy and then later throughout Europe and other parts of the world. Then they took these three individuals and they buried them in what you might want to call an Arimathean grave. And, uh, and in that, they buried these unknown kind of migrants because they had no idea who these individuals were. And they remembered them and tried to bury them with respect. But the issue never left Franco. And he always kept asking, what more can I do? So when, when um, the Pope decided to come to Lampedusa, uh, he was in charge with preparing the liturgy. So what he did is he went to this boat graveyard in Lampedusa, and then he decided to sort of work at making some chalices. And from the boat that I just showed you, um, he made actually four chalices. And um, first he made actually um, an altar made from the boat. Um, he made a crozier made in the form of a ship's wave, and it had a heart on it with some fish and then also a bread loaf that was on it as well. Um, but the real, um, he also made a, an ambo that was made from the rudders of a ship, very interesting imagery of steering and kind of navigating and others, you know, certainly as a new pope. But the real focal point, I think, of the mass was this chalice. Um, and so this was the chalice that was hewn from the driftwood of a refugee boat, of the boat that I mentioned where the people died, but, but most were saved. Um, so, uh, so what he did was he was hewing the bottom part, the stem, he actually took the nail out of the boat and he says it, it had a sizable hole in it. He said it was evocative of Christ's wounds. He says, but then when he put the nail back in, he said it was in the form of a cross. So that actually uh, on top of the cross is the chalice of life. So it's rather captivated me to, to think about what does it mean to use a chalice in the liturgy that was made from the remains of a refugee boat, especially in the midst of a global refugee crisis and an age of migration, you know, and so on. So it's, it's, uh, it's really a topic of reflection, but um, in the course of that, um, the, 
But the the fr fr uh, Francisco he he made uh, four chalices. As I said from that boat. One was this chalice that the Pope used. Um, but this is actually uh, another chalice that came from that boat. So this is uh, made from the from a refugee uh, from the driftwood of that refugee boat. These are actually pieces as well um, of other refugee shipwrecks that happened kind of in the area of Lampedusa. Um, and then the chalice didn't quite sit well on the altar when he used it. So one of our priest carpenter, Herb Yost, actually um, uh, made a piece on the bottom that was is made of mesquite wood from a um, from the American Southwest where the economic migrants come across. Um, so it's rather striking that really within this chalice is both a, a, a something of the stories of both the migrant and the refugee crisis going on in the world today. But it's, it's actually, um, it holds something even much more. Um, and I think it holds something much more because it actually is evocative um, of a far deeper migration. Um, and that migration uh, really has to deal with um, the, the great migration. And that great migration has to deal with the God who migrated into the far and distant territory of our sinful and broken existence. And there allowed himself to be nailed to a cross so that we could actually migrate back to our homeland. And so what we see God doing in Jesus is constantly breaking down those walls and barriers which keep us from being in connection with each other. Because the long journey of life and the central message of Catholicism is the God who wants to move us from the broken and fragmented and alien territory that we find ourselves in as sinful human beings to move us back and towards that territory of communion and reconciliation, which is our destiny. Um, so the Eucharist really is a way of reshaping our imagination around these issues. And I'll leave this here if people would like to, to take a look at it. Um, but, I, um, but I just want to conclude, because I think we're, um, we're basically at time. But I want to just conclude with, um, with four points. Um, there's a lot more to talk about, but I actually um, really want to highlight four. Um, the first is to look at the, the, the journey of, of people who are so-called nobodies uh, today. And in many ways, when people die and nobody even notices, this is what Pope Francis calls the globalization of indifference. You know, the fact that so many could die and nobody take notice, he says that if that happens, then something has died within us. And the fact that if we treat people as more valuable than others is really not the way God is looking at things. And really one of the deep pains that migrants have communicated over the years to me when I asked them, if you were in my position like this tonight, I said, what's the main thing that you want to communicate? They say things like, look, I've crossed the borders of the American Southwest and almost baked to death. He says, I've gone through mountains and almost frozen to death. I've gone through days without water and food and almost starved to death. He said, I've gone through the baggage compartments of buses and almost suffocated to death. He said, all that stuff is hard, but that's not the worst part about being a migrant. The worst part about being a migrant is when people treat you like you're a dog and like you're no one to anyone, like you're a nobody. Um, that's the biggest pain about being a migrant. And I'm sure people here in the front row can share many other stories about that. But that cuts to the core. And we can think about our own hurts and indignities, and I'm sure it's some variation of that. Because what, what the migrants reveal is not some kind of different category of humanity. It's basically our most raw humanity. They not only reveal who we are, but they expose it at the same time. And often that exposure can even really frighten us. But I think that's one of the reasons why their stories are so powerful. Secondly, their narratives reveal something about the struggle to become somebody. 
They, they don't necessarily want to become rich or famous or take something from Americans or any other country. They're saying we just want to live as human beings. We just want to become somebody because we believe that's who God wants us to be. We're not just immigrants or refugees or trafficked people or aliens. We're just human beings and we want to be treated like them. So recognizing their dignity is one of the most important things that we could possibly honor in people. Um, and it's just so basic. Even here in Portland, I'm sure there's people working, many of them, on campus and elsewhere who are immigrants. Uh, some people here tonight. And when people treat you with respect and honor your life and your value, that's where we begin. Um, that's We have to build on that base. But thirdly, we're not in this alone. And um, we're connected to everybody. And somehow the Eucharist is only bringing out the fact that we're not isolated individuals suddenly journeying through life, but somehow they're interconnections to life um, in ways that uh, we can't necessarily see but are no less real. I mean, I can't, we can't necessarily see all the things of the World Wide Web that make us connected. But in some sense, it's a symbol of the deeper interconnected bond that we share. And therefore, when somebody suffers and dies and we don't notice, then something within us does as well, unless we really cultivate that. And likewise, when we do something to that common bond, we strengthen it as well. But lastly, I think it brings out the, the connection to the body of Christ. And I think what the Eucharist helps us see is what is something that's real all the time. Um, and I think the Eucharist brings out that somehow the God who migrated to us also calls us to be in solidarity with those who are migrating today. Because in the end of the day, it's not about us and them. It's about all of us because we are also migrating. The, the gated community where we, if we were to isolate ourselves would be the death of our soul. Um, you know, if we were to really try to disconnect ourselves from, from, from other people, it would really keep us from being human. So, any event, this is the first word on this issue. There's a lot more I'd like to say. I offer these for your own reflection. But thanks so much for coming out tonight. In lieu of a question and answer period, uh, Father Grudy is going to stay around for a few minutes if you'd like to say hello to him and perhaps have a word with him. I know some of you will, uh, will want to have a look at this extraordinary chalice, but we also uh, know that on an occasion like this, the, the question that people would ask is, what can I do? And, uh, and, and to help to give an answer to that question, we have... Uh, some people here, just a couple people here who have some, some suggestions, some suggested answers. And uh, they are uh, Lori Laird, who's the director of our own Moreau Center. And, uh, and then as well, Sarah Granger from Catholic Charities. And I think uh, Rick Burkle is going to come up as well. Okay, so why don't you all come up, and then you can take your turns at the microphone. So let's welcome these people who are you know, on the front lines answering that question. Thank you. And thank you, Father Rudy, for, for helping to, us to understand uh, in, in small ways and the invitation to really enter deeply into uh, understanding this complex and simple issue. Uh, I, I think that the description of moving from your head to your heart to your feet and back to your head describes well what we try to invite people to, uh, to do uh, through the Moreau Center for Service and Justice. 
And so if you are at all interested in engaging and learning more about the issue of migration, there's an opportunity to participate in the border immersion that will happen during spring break. Uh, applications are due this Sunday, so it's not too late. Uh, and I would encourage students who are interested in that opportunity to come and talk with me afterwards. Um, I'll be at that back table. Uh, and then there are opportunities to get engaged uh, with the immigrant community here in our own neighborhood. And the Murrow Center can help connect you with those opportunities too. So thank you again for being here, and thank you for those who are going to continue to do this important work right here. So I'm with Catholic Charities, and we're just delighted to be partnering with the Garaventa Center tonight and um, having Father Grudy speak. We at Catholic Charities have an immigration legal team, um, and we also have a refugee resettlement program. And we would love to partner with community members to get involved as volunteers and learn more um, about our services. And we also have a unique opportunity to partner to continue to share stories. So we're encouraging folks to host house parties or other gatherings um, with Catholic Charities to, to firsthand share stories of the migrant journey and how we can all be called to conversion by hearing and sharing stories. And I'm, I'm with Raquel with Catholic Charities and um, again, I, I want to also thank uh, Father Dan for coming all this way from uh, Indiana to come here and uh, really feed us. I, I, as someone who does this work as an advocate for immigrants and migrants every day, I feel fed. I hope you do too. And um, we've also asked uh, Dr. Grady to, to partner with us a little bit more. We're gonna make them work a little bit more here in Portland. We've asked them to come to uh, Catholic Charities at the Clark Center in Southwest, uh, I'm sorry, Southeast Powell tomorrow. And I, I'd, I'd be happy to invite anyone from this group who would like to come. He'll be doing a workshop on how do we talk to people in our own faith communities and in the community at large about these issues. How do we change hearts and minds about migration? How do we even meet somewhere in the middle to talk about these issues? In a very divided church here, uh, not only in the United States, globally, and certainly in Oregon, this issue of how we treat migrants and how we even think about it and how we, which of those quadrants we're in, Dr. Grudy's gonna unpack that for us tomorrow a little, give us some tools, some ways to think about uh, how to have a conversation, maybe with our relatives, our children, our parents, our neighbors. Uh, so you, we invite you to that tomorrow at Catholic Charities. I also give you one more reason to come. Father Grudy will be celebrating Mass at the Clark Center at 8 o'clock, and I'd invite you all. And he'll be, I assume, using our chalice from the ship. And so if you really want a moment of solidarity uh, with our migrant brothers and sisters uh, who have perished, there's an opportunity to celebrate the Eucharist uh, with us tomorrow morning. 8 o'clock at the Clark Center, and then from 9 to 11.30, uh, Father Dan will be giving us some ideas about how to have this conversation. Thanks so much for the Garavanta Center and the University of Portland. What a terrific partnership. Uh, we love doing this together with you, Karen and uh, Father Charlie. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. And uh, thank you all. Uh, perhaps we could have one more round of applause for our, our speaker.
Father Judy, thank you. It's lovely. And good night, everybody.